0: So today's movie, Into the Wild, really put me in mind and in mindfulness of one of my favorite books about the spiritual life. It's by Jack Kornfield. It's called A Path with Heart. I know some of you are familiar with it. And right at the top of the book, he lays it out. He goes on to talk about many different techniques of meditation and mindfulness and contemplation. But right at the start, he lays it out. He says, all other spiritual teachings are in vain if we cannot love. All other spiritual teachings, all other spiritual experiences are in vain if we cannot love. He says, the ultimate questions are, did I love well? Did I live my path? Did I live the path with heart? Into the Wild, as many of you know, is based on a true story. It is the true-to-life story of Chris McCandless. It covers two years in his life, from summer 1990, right after he graduated college, through summer 1992, including the four months when he lived alone in the Alaskan wilderness. The movie starts out in this way. We see Chris when he is 22 years old, and he has given his entire $24,000 life savings to charity. He leaves behind a world of privilege and achievement that is before him. And he rechristens himself Alexander Supertramp, which, by the way, has absolutely nothing at all to do with that group that made Breakfast in America back in the 1970s. It's a naturalist book from the early 1900s that talks about the adventures of a supertramp, someone who travels around seeking adventure. And Chris, as Alex, heads off into the west, into the wilderness, into the deserts, into the mountains, into the rivers, into the streams, into the valleys, to experience adventure to live intentionally and directly and simply and mindfully. He heads as he writes to his friend that he meets along his path, his friend Wayne Westerberg. He writes about walking into the wild. Now there's a lot of controversy about Chris and let me say that after seeing this movie and reading the book about him, I'm a big fan. I'm actually shocked how much this story has profoundly affected me. But I do want to say, especially if you're listening to this and you're the parent of a child who's between the ages of 18 and 22, and you are exactly worried that they will go off and do exactly something like what Chris did. And perhaps it might have a tragic consequence, just as Chris's life did end from his time in the Alaskan wilderness. I do want to say that as much as I've sort of fallen in love with Chris... He is naive and arrogant and sometimes takes himself far too seriously. He thinks he can go it alone. But he is also absolutely idealistic and inspiring and fearless. I was actually shocked how much I was moved by this movie. So is his detractors, and if you want to go to the Wikipedia site and Look up Christopher McCandless and see people who have a minority report on who he was. Go ahead and do so. As I mentioned before, as some of you know, his story and his life did end. Most likely of starvation, although there's still some argument over that in the Alaskan wilderness in the summer of 1992. And I have to say, before I selected this movie for our spiritual cinema series at the Colonial Theater, when we showed it a couple weeks back, I had never seen it. I just knew that it was a very good movie. And so I said, well, might bring some new people in, maybe get us connected with some folks who don't know anything about Wellsprings yet. But I had completely prejudged the movie and judged it wrong. You see, I had this preconception in my mind's eye of a certain kind of guy that I went to college with that actually secretly I aspired to be, but really couldn't be. He read a lot of Nietzsche. He... And I read a lot of Nietzsche too, I just wasn't that cool. Um, he almost looked down on other people because they weren't quite as elevated as he was. They were deeply anti-religious, that spirituality was something for some ones who needed a crutch, who were weak in some ways. And they appeared to me, at the same time that they were so arrogant, so self-possessed. There was almost a certain touch of despair. In the way they look down on people like me who were religious studies majors, with one of Nietzsche's phrase human all too human. <laughs> but I gotta tell you, one, I could not have been more wrong in my judgments back then about idolizing that kind of guy, but I couldn't have been more wrong in thinking that Chris was one of those kinds of people. He was not. Chris's quest, as misguided as it was at times, is nothing more and nothing less than a complete and total spiritual quest to be fully and wonderfully human. And I think he has so much to teach us, as we'll delve in here today, so much to teach those of us who are not going to burn all of our money, who are not going to abandon our cars in the Southwest, who are living lives that otherwise might appear very staid, very, as he would say, bourgeois, the things that he rejected. But I think Chris still has many, many things to teach us. And the ultimate thing is this. It's a little bit of a negative example from his life, but it's still something that I admired about him. Chris did not, as I had prejudged, suffer from a deficit of love. He suffered from a surplus of it. He wanted to know a way of being and relating to other people that was true and real and didn't hide the nature of reality, as difficult as it can be, from our hearts, from our minds, and from our lives. Chris is ultimately naive, yes. But at least I have to say about him, he is naive about the right things. He is naive about the right things because the things that he was focused on matter. And they matter to all of us wherever we are in our lives. My mentor in ministry, uh, Reverend Dr. Forrest Church, he wrote a great book some years ago called The Seven Deadly Virtues. So too often we think of the seven deadly sins as they're taught traditionally. He says, well, no, there's actually seven deadly virtues, which is that any of the virtue misapplied or applied too much can be for- become a form of extremism. I think that is in some ways what happened to Chris. His story maps beautifully, almost magically, over the story of the Buddha and his own awakening and enlightenment. Like the Buddha, like the historical Buddha, Chris was from a very, very well-to-do family. He's from a background of privilege in which everything was set out before him and he could have chosen a path that was provided for him. But ultimately, what he judged that path, just as the Buddha did about his upbringing, was that it hid reality from him. That it offered comforts and comforters that were false. That were false. The thing about the Buddha's story is that he learned something that Chris did not learn or learned too late. Which is that the Buddha fleeing this life of comfort made the decision that at one point he would subsist on one grain of rice a day. He would give himself the minimum that he needed to be able to move himself away from this false comfort of food. Well, Chris adopts too much that mindset that the Buddha ultimately adjudged to be incomplete. Chris might have learned that awakening does not have to come around necessarily by asceticism any more than we would fall asleep by way of anesthesia. That's the difference. It is not that we have to be extreme in our measures to awaken. Chris did not learn that. Why does he start out? The movie offers some answers. The book, the same name, offers some answers. Why does he start out? What motivates him to seek this absolutely sort of extreme lifestyle where he would burn his money and leave his car and rely very often on the kindness of strangers or just his own wits to survive? Well, Wayne Westerberg, who's one of his friends that Chris worked for seasonally, he owned a grain elevator in South Dakota, he says that Chris, and he warned him about this, Chris was so overwhelmed by some basic questions that perhaps still perplex us. Chris just would not let go of this idea, this experience of why we are so rotten to each other, why we mistreat each other as human beings. Like I said, he was naive, but at least he was naive about the kinds of things that count. He just couldn't get over this fact of how cruel human beings could be to each other. Now, ironically... The hardest and most cruel part of his story is that even though so many of the people that Chris ran into along the course of his travels were enraptured with him, they found him to be a really remarkable person, and Chris did give something authentic of himself to them. However, Chris, as many of you might know, completely cut off his family. When he left after he graduated Emory University in summer of 1990, he completely cut off his family, no idea where he was, no idea where he was going, and I do have to say here that after 11 years in ministry, I have heard far more dysfunctional family histories than Chris's. There are far worse stories out there. There are a lot of lies, there are a lot of secrets in Chris's family, there's a lot of pain, but it's not the worst I've ever heard. But one of the things that Chris saw in college, the people around him, and that he ultimately just could not stomach, was hypocrisy of people saying one thing and doing the other. And he wanted to get away from that. People talking and speaking words of kindness, but not practicing deeds of kindness. This is a harsh medicine that he gives his family. And it's one that ultimately I can't quite, not that it's my role, but I can't quite forgive him for. But it is something I understand just a very little bit. And maybe some of you understand this, those of you who have searched and have sought and have encountered spiritual adventure in your lives. It reminds me just a little bit of the time I told my Jewish grandmother that the tradition in which I had been raised could no longer hold me. Man, did the tears flow. It was not easy. And mind you, it was one year not quite to the day I'm not that foolish even when I was 23 years old but just about one year after her daughter my mom had dropped dead unexpectedly I told her that the Judaism in which I was raised I did not reject but it no longer could hold the shape of my soul and so not just was I leaving Judaism I was becoming or eventually going to become a UU minister was I foolish foolish in delivering, in the method of delivering the news the way that I did, yes, I was overly bold. I probably could have waited a little bit longer. She didn't need to hear that right there, right then, but I had this compulsion to have to tell her. But the truth is, the truth is that 16 years later, after that conversation, it is one that we had to have. I had to disappoint her. I had to tell her that my path would call me beyond what I knew so I could go where I needed to go. Your story may not be exactly mine, but I know that some of you have had these stories with your family members and they are difficult. And there's no way that you could not have them because that would be violating the truth of what your life called you to be. And so 16 years ago, it was the right conversation to have because this is what I am called to do. And I didn't cut her off. And perhaps even more graciously, she didn't cut me off. And we are still close to this day. There is always such a delicate balance that Chris didn't quite figure out how to titrate that in the right ways in his life between the call of where we need to go and also holding in our hearts a generous humility. A sense that we are not the only ones here and that this humility calls us back into life with other people even even when we must disappoint them. The form that it takes in the movie, most pointedly, is that Chris idealizes nature. He thinks he will go into an unmapped, unmarked terrain where he is the first one there, so much so that he doesn't even take a map with him into the Alaskan wilderness, and if he would have just taken a small nap, chances are that he would have survived. Chris idealizes himself in nature without accepting the reality, and sometimes the brutality and the harshness of nature. He is self-mythologizing. So much of what we know about Chris was taken from his journal that he kept. And he wrote about himself in the third person, kind of like an arrogant sports star. He would write things like, I'm not Superman, I'm Super Tramp. And holding an apple, he would say, You're Super Apple. You're so delicious and so organic. You're the apple of my eye. He was really pleased with words like that. But he also would write things very, very self-seriously, as he did in Alaska this time there. Here begins his climactic battle to kill the false being within and victoriously conclude the spiritual revolution. If you ever feel yourself taking yourself this seriously, let's talk. (laughs) Well, part of the reason for this is that Chris found his heroes and his heroines not in other living, breathing people, but in books. He found them through the words of Jack London, and Tolstoy and Thoreau. And in many ways it reminds me of a little bit that movie Goodwill Hunting from a number of years ago about a very, very bright young man who is very, very injured and cannot or has not yet found out the way to connect with living, breathing human beings. And so instead seeks his salvation in the printed word as a way of not paying full attention to the life inside of him. Even beyond the Buddha story, this is where Chris's story is very much like Thoreau. Thoreau, our sage and saint from our Unitarian tradition, who goes into the wilderness at that time, of Walden Pond, to live deliberately. Chris wants to live out what Thoreau says, that he went to the woods to suck the marrow out of life, to live deliberately. That if life was a mean thing, he would know its meanness. Really know it, not seek comfort from it. And I do have to give credit to Sean Penn, who made the movie, because there are moments when we see how mean and cruel nature can be. Or, Thoreau writes, if it does not mean to know how sublime it is, to know how beautiful this life is. And there are moments in the movie that brought tears to my own eyes. There is one moment where Chris is just wandering sort of through the wilderness in Alaska, and he comes across this herd of caribou that are just doing what, Caribou do, traveling in a pack. And he is so overcome by the beauty of this moment that he did not establish and he did not help along, but yet he is blessed to witness that tears form in his eyes and roll down his cheeks. That kind of intentional living, that kind of ability to witness that greater life than ourselves is what makes Chris finally so idealistic and so inspiring for me. Early in the movie, there's a voiceover at one point, and it's kind of the mission statement of Chris's life, and I think it's important. He says, I know how important it is not necessarily to be strong, but to feel strong, to find yourself at least once in the most ancient of human conditions, facing the blind, deaf, cold stone alone with nothing to help you but your own hands and your own head. This is very much in keeping with the spirit of Thoreau and of the transcendentalists, those great teachers from our tradition. He also took some of the cheekier parts from Thoreau as well, too, when Thoreau once said, beware of any new venture that requires a new set of clothing. Chris, although having, I think, a 3.72 cumulative GPA by his junior year at Emory, which is a great university, he was offered membership in Phi Beta Kappa, he declined it on principle, kind of like Marlon Brando refusing to accept the Academy Award. Because, although it might have seemed silly, I think I got what Chris was getting at. He understood how easy it is for us to turn the outer trappings of what we earn, what we make, what we're given, who we are, and to have them replace the inner wellsprings of the things that truly matter. And so his principled stand was to say, no, I will do things that have intrinsic good, not because they bring me reward. And so this is a movie not just about transcendence, but very much about and in line with our transcendentalist history. Emerson and Thoreau and Whitman and Margaret Fuller, their spirit keeps coming up and up and up and up all the time throughout this movie. And they represent, in many ways, the most spiritually vital parts of our UU traditions. But as much as I love what the transcendentalists have given us and given Wellsprings... The Transcendentalists preached an idea that we did not need an intermediary to come to full, real, personal knowledge of the holiness and the sacred that was in our midst each and every day. Right here, right now, not for another day, not for another time, but right here, right now, they preach the gospel of full awakening for all beings. But at the same time, the Transcendentalists also had this hostility, this mistrust to anything that might have been inherited this mistrust to anything that offered help outside the self. Emerson was the giant of this kind of teaching, self-reliance. Some of you have heard me say it before. It's a wonderful essay, but it is so immature. It is so immature in its desire to cast off all help that is not just or solely generated from the inside. And at the same time, there was this whole other side to Emerson that was beautiful. And I read about it just this past week. He was writing to a friend of his, and he said, the whole of my philosophy... Is acquiescence and optimism. Acquiescence and optimism. It might seem that, well, what's the connection between acquiescence and optimism? I think what he was getting at is that when we can acquiesce, we might actually recognize that we are not the sole people piloting this ship. And when we can acquiesce to the larger reality of life, we will recognize that we are not alone. And when we are not alone, we will recognize that we are also not alone as we continue to grow and seek help and establish the fullness of our souls. And that is the basis of a true and deep optimism. And that's the connection between acquiescence and optimism. Chris needed to learn that. And he didn't, although some tried to teach him. I want to show you a clip right here, right now. This is from a connection that Chris made with a guy named Ron who was an older man who many years before had lost his wife and child to a drunk driver and then had tried to drink his own life away and then after bottoming out, reestablished himself in life. And Ron really takes an absolute shine to Chris. They have a kind of grandfather-grandson relationship. And one day in the clip you're about to see, Chris, in a very arrogant way, is telling Ron what he needs to do to awaken in his life and he's challenging the old man to walk up this mountain well once they get to the summit Chris continues to try to teach but Ron has something to teach him as well that is a very transcendentalist moment right there suspicious of institutions the family or the church but still hungering for that deeper spiritual connection very much so right there Maybe Chris is starting to learn that all that negative energy he was built up about running away from his family, he might just be starting to let go of. I love that teaching, when you forgive, you love, and when you love, God's light shines on you. This is in many ways the core aspect of the movie and also why the movie is so tragic because Chris is just starting to learn that. It seems that the final words that he left everyone, us, now that we know them, we're about to know them, are these. I showed that slide. When he knew he was dying, he wrote these out by hand. I have had a happy life and thank the Lord. Goodbye and God bless all. And he signed his name. And that's important for a reason, I'll tell you why in a second. Christopher Johnson McCandless. Perhaps that was the final little bit of grace note he could leave his parents after he'd caused them all this worry and all this struggle. One of the reasons that Chris had such a pure and uncompromising and rigorously, painfully ethical view of what his life called him to be Is that because he witnessed hypocrisy all around him the kind of hypocrisy that we can see in our lives as well He saw the quest for money without the quest for meaning. He saw relationships without love. He saw ambition without humility or kindness and ultimately this is what Chris Wanted he didn't want cheap grace and he didn't want cheap thrills He didn't want shortcuts to real intimacy And this leads me to my favorite scene in the movie A young woman who's played by Kristen Stewart, whose career has actually just exploded, if you know anything at all about Twilight. that was before she came out, before this movie came out. And she has the hots for Chris. That's just the simplest way we can put it. And he's attracted to her as well, too. She's a little younger than him. He's 23 at this point. She is, we realize, 16. And one day, it's actually Christmas Day, in this sort of hippie commune that's one of the last places that Chris stays before he heads up to the wilderness of Alaska, Kristen Stewart's parents have left their trailer, and she sort of invites him in, and she is laying on the bed in a pose that, well, suggests only one thing that she is offering. And he says, how old are you? 18, she says. 17. 16. And Chris says, we're not doing this. And she says, why? My parents are gone. He says, no, no, no. <laughs> we're not doing this. Now, it's left over some in interpretation right there. But I don't think that he's primarily, although he's mindful of primarily saying no just because of her age. And I don't think it's because he's afraid of intimacy. The most blunt way I can put it, and it is very different than a lot of 22-year-old straight men, is that he cares a lot more about intimacy than just getting laid. And so in the movie, the next scene, He suggests this. He says, let's do something really meaningful together. He knows he's going out on the road. He knows he could sleep with her. Well, she's a singer and a songwriter. And so in the next scene, after she's a little bewildered as to why he's not accepting her sexual advances, the next scene is them singing a song together for the entire community in which they are in. And you can see that their communion and their connection is so deep and so real and is not cheap, in any way, I will think of this scene every time. Every time I'm watching Sports Center late at night, and yet another god awful commercial for Girls Gone Wild goes on. <laughs> They're ubiquitous. They're all over the place. Sports Center should be called Porn Center. I swear, you know. <laughs> it's about cheap grace and cheap thrills. Chris's ethic was so rigorous because in so many ways it was so right. He did not want to treat other people and he did not want to treat nature itself as a means solely to achieve his own pleasure. I think this, well, actually not the scene that I showed you, although I love it, but the scene that I was just describing should be shown to all straight men between the ages of 14 and 80. (laughs) Maybe 25, but 80 might work too. <laughs> There's so much in... in I, I think that's probably why, why the movie affected me so strongly is because I certainly didn't want the end of Chris's life that he had. But I wish when I was his age, I could have learned to channel my hungers better into something that wasn't so much about my pleasure into something that wasn't so much about instant gratification built upon anxiety and need and sometimes resentment of what I did not have. And that's why Chris's story is ultimately about the quest to know what real love is. And that's why when I showed you his name before, and I referred to this quote last week in my message, but it's so key to understanding today as well, too. One of his favorite quotes we know from what he had underlined and left behind in the books that he treasured was from Pasternak's Dr. Shivago. And it's a small phrase. It says, She was here on earth to grasp the meaning of its wild enchantment and to call each thing by its right name. To call each thing by its right name. To be enchanted on that level that clearly Chris, on a certain level, wanted to be drawn toward. To know a thing and call it by its right name is one thing that he had raced away from. He became the made-up Alexander Supertramp, tied to nothing and tied to no one. But at his very end, Christopher Johnson McCandless, he could see that his life was connected more and much of his life had testified to. Brings me to actually one of my favorite models of mature masculinity... ...is Bruce Springsteen. A couple years ago, when Bruce and the East Street Band had reunited... ...after, I think God, 13, 14, almost 15 years of not playing together... ...they played a series of sold-out concerts in Madison Square Garden. And there was such a thrill, such a sense of joy... ...of the whole band getting back together. And you all know 10th Avenue Freeze Out, up Horn to Run... Y'all somewhat aware of that? Well, it's like a a three-and-a-half-minute song on the album. But he turns it into this amazing, he and the band turn it into this amazing, like, 17-and-a-half-minute introduction, gospel revival, expression of gratitude. And during this little thing where he's doing his Southern Revival, his preacher thing, he says, he's talking about crossing over the river. He's talking about going over the river to the other side, and there's healing and companionship and all kinds of other good things that people want. The key thing is, he says, you can't get to those things by yourself, which is why we're here night after night after night after night. What Bruce testifies to, what I think we all know, is that, as Chris finally learns as well, and perhaps one of the last sentences he ever scrawled, is that happiness is only real when shared. Happiness is magnified through its Being shared What Chris ultimately learns And I'm not one of those people who sees some kind of sacrifice in his death I'm not one of these people who glorifies death To the extent that somehow it's a big romantic statement Chris didn't want to die and he didn't mean to die And so it is nothing but sadness and tragedy that he had to die because The world would be at a better place if Christopher Johnson McCandless were still with us With all that he had learned and all that he could continue to teach, especially those closest to us. Because what he had learned is what I started with. That adventure and awakening and enlightenment and knowing God and all the other things we would hope to call it and do call it. That as Jack Cornfield said, simply put, all other spiritual teachings are in vain if we cannot love. All our power and prestige and all our desire to grow. All these things are in vain if we cannot love. Like the myths, all great myths, Alex, Chris, had to travel very, very far from home in order to find the thing that is closest to his heart. And I hope for all of you and all of us who hopefully do not have to go to the extremes that Chris did Or meet the same end that he did. But all of us who are still travelers and still pilgrims and still seekers and searchers. That we will come to know that truth here. That everything else we are. And everything else we have. It is in vain if we cannot love. Amen. I love you. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God who invites us out onto the open road of the soul. For all of us who would seek new vistas, new venues, the multiplicity of avenues by which our spirits may expand and reach that place known as awakening. May we remember this, so that Chris's life is a living benediction over ours, that we are not the only travelers on the road, that there are others who walk before us, alongside of us, behind us, who give us gifts. Who give us what we need and might allow us to give them what they need. May we know more than anything else that we are not alone. And that the deepest reality of this life is that healing water of love. that will not die and does not run dry. Amen.